0: Welcome to another episode of American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, and lore of America's past. The show is hosted by Cody Beck and Troy Taylor, and today we are continuing our third season, which we call Murdered in Their Beds. If you're tuning into the podcast for the first time, we recommend going back to episode 36 and start the new season from there. It's the first part in this series and marks the beginning of the transient butcher's reign of terror in the Midwest of the early 1900s. Each episode will not only explore the killer's horrific crimes, but will explore the effect he had on the small railroad towns of the region, especially the town of Aliska, Iowa. So turn up the lights, lock all the doors, and prepare yourself for the next installment of murdered in their beds. In southwestern Iowa, they called it the Summer of Fear. The entire region was on edge. Years later, folks would talk about the horrific things that happened that summer, from the murders to the terrible storms that wreaked havoc on the landscape. Damaging winds and violent electrical storms pounded the area, and at least a half dozen farm buildings near Villisca, including two houses and several barns, were destroyed by wind or burned after being hit by lightning. Several unlucky farmers lost their entire crop of oats, and a new house built by John Slack burned to the ground. But the weather, of course, was not the most prominent topic of conversation that summer. Everyone was still talking about the murders. Fear still loomed over the small town. Doors were still being locked at night. And after dark, the streets of Villisca were nearly deserted. The Stillingers had more sorrow that summer. A few days after Ida and Lena's funerals, Sarah Stillinger lost her unborn son. And before the year was over, their family home was destroyed by fire. Iowa governor, Burl F. Carroll, announced in June that the state was offering a $500 reward for information, leading to an arrest in the Velisca case. But those in southwest Iowa saw this as a hollow gesture. It was a paltry sum, they said. While $500 was a lot of money in 1912, it seemed an inadequate reward for finding the killer of eight people. Angry Velisca residents vowed to raise more money, and they did. The reward fund, which grew into thousands of dollars thanks to donations from locals and from people across the country, was deposited in the First National Bank in Villisca, which was owned by Frank Jones. Governor Carroll defended the reward, pointing out correctly that he was limited to $500 per case by statute and couldn't legally offer more. But what most people didn't know then was that the state was doing a lot more behind the scenes. Carroll had given approval to Attorney General George Cozen to hire a detective from the famed Burns Detective Agency. The agency, which had branch offices all over the country and overseas, had been founded by William J. Burns, who had quite a reputation as a crime solver in those days. He would soon earn the moniker of America's Sherlock Holmes after clearing Leo Frank of the sensational murder of Mary Fagan in 1915. Burns had been born in Baltimore, Maryland, and was educated in Ohio. As a young man, he'd been a Secret Service agent and used his reputation to form his own detective agency. A combination of natural ability as an investigator combined with an instinct for publicity made Burns a national figure. His exploits made national news, the gossip columns of New York newspapers, and the pages of detective magazines, in which he published true crime stories based on his exploits. Iowa state officials believed that the investigation was in good hands with the Burns agency involved. It would only be a matter of time, they believed, before the case would be solved. A detective from the Burns office in Kansas City named C.W. Toby was assigned to the case. Toby insisted that he wanted to work undercover for a time, and so he came to Velisca in secret. He wanted to investigate the scene, talk to people, and see what he could learn from local gossip and speculation. He was already in town when locals began complaining about the Iowa governor's reward fund, but because Toby was then working in secret, Carol could not admit that a detective had already been hired. Toby identified himself only to State's Attorney Ratcliffe, Sheriff Jackson, Constable Hank Horton, and a handful of officials that he thought needed to know of his presence in town. There is no indication that Toby, or O'Leary, the detective brought in by Hank Horton, had any problems with one another, even though they were in direct competition. In fact, there's no record of them having any contact at all. Both men hope to truck down the killer, claim the growing reward, and make front page news of the detective who caught the Villisca murderer. Neither shared information with the other, and they had no contact with any of the other professional and amateur detectives who were roaming the countryside. Toby, like all other Burns detectives, traveled with a typewriter that he used to file daily reports that were mailed to both the Kansas City and Chicago offices. Another copy was sent directly to Governor Carroll. Toby felt that he had a huge break in the case only days after his arrival in town, but what happened illustrates the problems that occurred with having a dozen or more investigations going on at the same time. Mike Kearns was one of two night watchmen who worked in Villisca. The other watchman, Henry Mike Overman, had seen someone he didn't recognize in the town square on the night of the murder and let the man pass without checking to see who he was. He was later criticized for letting this happen, and so Kearns undoubtedly had instructions to check out any stranger that he encountered. On the night of July 6th, he approached a poorly dressed man at the railroad depot and began to question him. The man began acting strangely and then suddenly fled into the darkness. Kearns, along with Hank Horton, searched for the man all night, but they never found him. However, they did discover that he had checked his baggage at the station. He had given the name Otto Matusbach, and his suitcases were checked through to Chicago. Horton contacted Sheriff Jackson and Agent O'Leary, who was working for the county. Even though Toby was in town and had made himself known to law enforcement officials, they didn't bother to tell him about the incident. And why would they? It was a strange man at the train station on July 6th, almost a month after the murders. But anyway, Sheriff Jackson contacted authorities in Chicago and asked them to apprehend whoever came to the express window to collect the man's baggage. Three days later, on July 9th, Chicago police officers picked up the man and it was only then that Toby was told about the suspect. The only reason he heard about it at all was because he was with Horton when the telegram from Chicago arrived. Toby was irritated by the local police officer's failure to communicate with him, but he made the best of the situation. In his report that night, he noted that he had spoken with Jackson and Ratcliffe about the situation and had confirmed with the Chicago police that Jackson would be leaving in the morning to pick up the prisoner. The next morning, knowing that a letter would reach Governor Carroll faster than his report, and probably worried that none of his recent reports had mentioned a man that locals considered a prime suspect, he quickly sent a letter to the governor and he began it with, quote, We have under arrest, unquote, and went on to explain that Matusback fit the description of one of the men seen in town on the weekend of the murders. Not really. He asked the governor to keep everything under the strictest confidence and added that he was hopeful that this arrest may straighten out affairs here. But as it turned out, Matuzbek had nothing to do with the murders. He had been working in Missouri for the previous three months. He had been 200 miles away at the time of the murder and had left on July 6th to return to Chicago. He had stopped in Villisca only to change trains. No one knows why he ran from Kearns that night, but after he had established his alibi, he was released from custody. Toby had to follow up his letter about the arrest with one that exonerated the only suspect he had. But he went back to work and continued his investigation during July and August, only leaving in September after he was promoted to the position of manager at the Burns office in Chicago. He ran down dozens of leads and investigated a number of remote possibilities, but in the end, he turned up nothing of value. He'd heard the rumors about Frank Jones' involvement in the case, but dismissed them. He also heard about Reverend Kelly doing some strange things, but he had little interest in the odd little man as a suspect. It seemed obvious to Toby that the killer was no longer in Villisca. He eventually left town disappointed that none of his leads panned out. In July, Reverend Kelly... Was back in town. He was now referring to himself as a detective, claiming that he had trained as a criminologist while living in London. His theories about the crime varied from time to time, but in some letters, he stated that he believed the killer was a member of the Moore family. He never named a suspect, but in letters written in the weeks after the murders, his ideas seemed to coincide with the early speculations about Sam Moyer, the itinerant drifter who had been married to JB's younger sister, Anna. Regardless of what he wrote though, Kelly would talk to anyone who would listen to him about the murders. One night he became so agitated in the lobby of the Velisca Hotel that frightened guests asked Mike Kearns to come over and settle him down. Kelly was ranting about the murder in which they believed the killings had occurred, performing a vigorous reenactment of the attacks. Detectives Tobin O'Leary dealt with Reverend Kelly in different ways. Kelly wrote to and spoke with both men and offered to work with them. He insisted on telling them about the ideas that he received from visions and dreams. Toby wanted nothing to do with the obvious oddball and eventually wrote him a very sternly worded letter that made that clear. O'Leary, on the other hand, cultivated the relationship. He apparently felt that Kelly had something worthwhile to offer. Toby remained in Velisca until his move to Chicago. At that point, a Burns detective named W.S. Gordon took his place in town. Gordon called the case, quote, one of the greatest, if not the greatest, crime mysteries in the history of the United States, unquote. He said that the Burns agency had never faced a bigger challenge. He spent the fall of 1912 helping the police to eliminate suspects in the case. That period marked the high point of the relationship between the Burns Agency and the state of Iowa. It would continue until 1915, but it became increasingly volatile over time, especially after an incident in the fall of 1912. Most of the people in Villisca spent the summer of 1912 going about their usual routines during the daytime. But at night, it was a different story. The initial terror had passed, but it was still common to find two or three families sleeping in one house. Many farmers took their wives and children to the home of a friend or a relative after evening chores. Sheriff Jackson probably hurt the situation more than helped it that summer, making frightening newspaper statements like, quote, this is the most terrible and deadly menace with which society has ever had to deal. Heaven only knows where these fanatics may strike next. It may be my family, it may be yours. He also told the press that, quote, when the next family is found murdered by an ax and that discovery of this kind will be shortly made, I'm certain the police in the entire country should cooperate in running down the perpetrator, unquote. It took only a matter of weeks for his prediction to come true. Another axe murder occurred in Illinois in September, and even though it would turn out to have no connection to Velisca, it sent shockwaves through the investigation and nearly ruined the relationship between the Burns Detective Agency and the state of Iowa. In the early morning hours of Sunday, September 29, 1912, brutal murders were committed in a lonely house near Payson, Illinois, a quiet farm community east of Quincy. The murders would stun the people of Western Illinois, ruin the lives of the accused killer and his fiance, and shock the Midwest. On the morning of September 30th, news reporters in Quincy were already at work fanning the flames of panic. Murdered in homes, screamed the headlines, spreading the news of the previous day's events. The newspaper columns that followed told the harrowing tale of the murders of Charles Fanschmidt, his wife, Matilda, their 15-year-old daughter, Blanche, and a young schoolteacher, Emma Campen, who boarded with the family. The bodies were removed from the Fanschmidt home after a fire swept through the residence on Sunday. The police surmised that they might have been killed as early as Friday night, and the fire set the next day to destroy the evidence. Telephone lines to the house had been cut, making it impossible for friends to reach them on Saturday. Neighbors spotted smoke coming from the house very early on Sunday morning and alerted the authorities. By the time they arrived, it was burning out of control. The fire nearly destroyed the house, and when the metal roof was removed, the bodies of three women were found lying on blood-soaked mattresses in what would have been the upstairs bedrooms of the house. The roof had preserved the corpses well enough to reveal that the women had been bludgeoned with an axe while they were sleeping. Another body was discovered in the ruins of the cellar. There was so little remaining of the charred corpse that it was impossible to determine its sex. The flesh and bones of the head, arms, shoulders, upper trunk, legs, and half of the lower trunk were gone. Only one thigh remained. A doctor later testified that the body had been dismembered with knives and a saw before it was burned. It was eventually determined that the body belonged to Charles Fanschmidt. Near the body in the cellar was an axe head with what was later determined was human blood baked on it from the intense heat of the flames. The handle of the axe had been completely burned away. Police officers and sheriff's deputies immediately descended on the scene, gathering law enforcement personnel and armed citizens to search the countryside for the killer. Bloodhounds were brought to the scene in an effort to trace the murderer, who it was believed had driven to the home in a buggy on Saturday night, a few hours before the fire was discovered. It was no surprise that the police believed that Billy the Axeman had struck again. According to newspaper reports, they were seeking, quote, the degenerate who had perpetrated several axe murders in Iowa and Colorado recently, unquote. They also noted that the crime was similar to the horror and Velisca, and the local police were not the only ones who believed this. This new murder got the attention of the Iowa Attorney General, and he asked the Burns Detective Agency to send a man to look into it. C.W. Toby, who had worked the Velisca case in July and August before going off to manage the agency's Chicago office, assigned himself to the investigation. Detective Thomas O'Leary from the Kirk's Detective Agency was still embroiled in the Villisca case, and he also went to Quincy to investigate. The two men were soon to clash, causing a situation that managed to help the killer escape prosecution. Before either detective arrived in Quincy, the Adams County Sheriff had arrested Ray Fanschmidt, age 20, the only surviving offspring of the murdered couple. The young man had moved out of his family's home in August to start work on an excavation project for the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad. He was living in a tent near the work site. The main evidence against him was a set of buggy tracks that led away from the Fanschmidt house, which may or may not have matched his buggy, and suspicious bloodstained clothing that may or may not have belonged to him. The clothes had been discovered by accident. J.L. Freeze, who lived near the work camp, was making improvements on his property and moved an outhouse to a new location. When the structure was moved, he found a bundle of bloody clothing hidden beneath it and called the police. The khaki shirt and pants were spattered with blood, which could have been either human or animal because Adams County Sheriff had no way to test it, with the largest stains measuring about two inches in diameter. When the police showed the clothing to Ray's fiance, Esther Reeder, she said that they might belong to him. This was not exactly hard evidence, but in those days the police could arrest just about anyone, whether the evidence against them was solid or not. Soon other information emerged, however. On the surface, none of it looked good for Ray. His father, Charles, had owned a considerable amount of real estate and his wife had owned large tracts of land that she had inherited from her father. Upon the deaths of the older couple, their land and money would go to their children, meaning that Ray stood to gain a large inheritance after the murders. It was known that he had money problems. In the weeks prior to the murders, Charles received two notes from his bank informing him that his son's accounts were overdrawn. Charles had allegedly complained to a friend about Ray's spending habits, and that was all the motive that prosecutors needed to pin the crime on Ray. Detective Thomas O'Leary, who was still working for Montgomery County, Iowa, arrived in Quincy to look into the case. He quickly decided that the evidence was overwhelming. Ray Fanchmitt was the killer and the murders had nothing to do with Villisca. Detective Toby, though, saw things differently. While his bill was being paid by the state of Iowa to determine if the crimes of Velisca and Payson were related, he talked to a few people and visited Ray Fanschmidt in jail. After meeting with the Burns, Detective Fanschmidt hired Toby as an expert witness to testify that the murders could have been committed by the roving axe maniac who had slaughtered people in Colorado, Kansas, Illinois, and Iowa. Toby, considered an expert in the other cases, was supposed to provide an element of reasonable doubt for the defense. In the end, it worked, but things started off badly for Ray. At the initial trial in March 1913, Ray was tried and convicted for the murder of his sister. It was common practice in multiple murder cases to charge the defendant with only one death. That way, if he was exonerated, he could be tried again for another, allowing the prosecutor to skirt past the double jeopardy rule. Ray was found guilty and headed for the gallows in October. The evidence against him was circumstantial, but Ray was perceived as being greedy and spoiled. It didn't help his prospects when his grandfather testified in court about his constant demands for money. Quote, I told him, Ray, you're going to the dogs and you're going there damn fast. The old man was quoted as saying, no doubt with grim satisfaction. His lawyers appealed the case, stating that a change of venue request should have been granted due to the extreme prejudice against the defendant expressed by people living in the area. They argued that some of the evidence, including letters from the bank regarding overdrafts, should not have been admitted. In February 1914, Ray was granted a new trial by the Illinois Supreme Court. He was retried for the murder of his sister and found not guilty. Well, he was then put on trial for the murder of his father and reasonable doubt won over again. The case for the murder of his mother was dismissed and the authorities didn't try to convict him again. Ray collected his inheritance and left Adams County for good. Many people strongly believe that Ray had gotten away with murder. If so, C.W. Toby helped him. For a time, the Burns detective was on the payroll of not only the state of Iowa, but was also being paid by the man he was being hired to investigate. It may have seemed like an ethical dilemma, but if Toby could have connected the case in Illinois to the case in Iowa, he would have done so. The reward fund connected to the Villisca murders alone was substantial, and Toby, along with the Burns agency, would have profited from a solution to the crime. Things were eventually smoothed over and the agency would continue to work for the state until 1915, although no hard evidence was ever obtained by the Burns detectives. The Illinois murder stunned the people of Villisca. They had penned all their hopes on a solution to their own murders, but that was not to be. There was no connection between the two crimes other than that the murders were committed with an ax. The Fanschmidt crime, while baffling, had almost none of the similarities between the earlier murders in Colorado, Kansas, Iowa, and elsewhere in Illinois. I take that back. There was one other connection between the Fanschmidt murders and all the others. The murder in Payson would also never be solved. The murders in Payson, Illinois that year show how quick that everyone involved in the Villisca murders, including law enforcement officials, wanted to believe that a sinister, faceless killer was at work. They didn't want to believe that the man who had murdered the Moore family and the Stillinger girls could be a local, someone that they all knew. Billy the Axeman had now taken on the role of a Midwest boogeyman, lurking behind every murder where an axe was used and in somewhere it wasn't. Near Council Bluffs, Iowa in the summer of 1912, a Danish farmer named Martin Thompson, his wife and their eight-year-old son were found dead in their home. Their throats had been cut with a butcher's knife and the heads of the woman and boy had been smashed with a hammer. Early reports incorrectly stated that all of them had been killed by an ax. Newspapers and local gossip immediately speculated about a connection to Villisca, Colorado, Kansas, and Illinois murders, and Sheriff Jackson and County Attorney Ratcliffe went there to pursue it. When they arrived, their hopes were dashed when local authorities showed them a suicide note written by Thompson. He killed his wife and son and then turned the knife to his own throat. After their hopes had been dashed by the evidence of the Schmidt murders in Illinois, the authorities began another anxious frenzy of searching for clues and Villisca. Things had become so desperate they were willing to try anything, even spreading the word that Lena Stillinger could identify her killer. According to a newspaper report, detectives had somehow acquired a photograph of the murderer from an image preserved on the retina of one of Lena's eyes. She had apparently awakened during the attack and her body was found with its eyes open. They were checking the image now, they said, and plan to make an announcement about the killer's identity soon. Needless to say, no announcement ever came. It's believed that the story was planted by one of the detectives in the case, hoping that it might force the murderer to identify himself in some way if he thought that his name was going to be revealed. Billy the Axeman continued to strike fear in the hearts of people all over the Midwest. But where was he? And would he strike again soon? If you have the nerve to return for our next episode, we'll be taking a journey to the town of Paola, Kansas, in early June 1912, the last Axeman attack before the killer arrived in Villisca. So remember to lock the doors when you go to bed tonight. And just in case you might want to look under the bed and make sure no one is hiding there, you don't want to end up on the Axeman's list.
1: Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. You've caught up with us in season three, which we call Murdered in Their Beds, the true story of the Midwest axe murders of the 1900s. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, glad to be here again. So, yeah, thanks for coming back. I think
0: actually every time well, I should say that we're glad to be here because it yeah. meets the alternative. Right. So
1: I just, I should introduce you to Sam. I have a special guest this week, oh, yeah, uh, right, Troy Taylor. Right, just right. Back yeah, happy to,
0: happy to be here in the studio with you. Thanks um, for making the time, man. Yeah, you know, yeah. I know it's
1: <laughs> scheduling, it's uh, my assistant talking to your assistant's right, assistant. It's and, hard to, you know, get that all worked out. Oh, man, it's tough. Okay. So, Uh, We've been starting off each episode now uh, acknowledging some of the iTunes reviews that we've been getting. And so I wanted to start off by sharing a review from Kimmy N., she said, "I'm new to the podcast, but it's awesome. Very informative about the locations, which I truly love, and then the other creepy stuff mixed in. I love the banter. Well, thank you. Uh, I did. I did want to ask Cody <laughs> I and it was Troy. Cringe-worthy. I know. I did want to ask Cody and Troy. Go back to uh, American Hogs Podcast 13. Start listening at 21:40. There are several several people in the room, and I can hear talking. But who's whispering if you're all talking?" So my first answer is ghost. The <laughs> second and most likely answer—it's probably actually my little brother, Ricky. Oh yeah,
0: I forgot he was there. Who was uh, he? Was yeah. kind
1: of producing uh, that show for me because, yeah. uh, long story short, I had something else I had to do, and we were getting all the right. guides together. Yeah, you weren't there. I wasn't. That there. Point, I was there that's for the right, first. You one. had to leave. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I, I remember that now. I, yeah. So uh, it was really, really hard to coordinate all the schedules of all the guides. Right. And the time that they could get together, I couldn't be there. So we had somebody else right. come in, and I'm guessing Ricky was probably like, "Am I doing this?" Right or like you know what, yeah, what am I doing? It
0: probably was him. I didn't yeah. think about that. So
1: thanks for the review um, on iTunes. We really appreciate that and the the rating. It just really it really helps people find our podcast. Right, right. So thank you so much for that. Uh, we have some stuff coming up, some events and things. We you do want to talk about. We it? do
0: um, actually April thirtieth, which is by the time you hear this, will be just days away. I believe. Yeah. Um, and we have or I have a new book coming out. Called the Song of Dance and Death, which is uh, as I like to uh, just short descriptor: sex, drugs, magic, murder, rock and roll. Um, it's amazing! It's uh, so it's if you were at the conference last year, the Haunted America conference, uh, I did a presentation on um, part of this book uh, on some of the curses in the Twenty Seven Club, and that is that's a small part of this book. It's it's all about the you know, the effect of the occult and the history of rock and roll. It was just a, it was a fun book to do. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's just one of those things. And I am not a musician. I've never been a musician. I cannot sing a lick, Uh, but I've been, you know, obsessed with music my whole life. So this was one of those books that, I've always wanted to write something like this, and it, it, it just came together. So it was a lot of fun. Uh, but speaking of the conference, that's coming up June 21st and 22nd uh, here in Alton, Illinois, at the Best Western Premier Hotel. We are two-thirds of the way sold out now, so we've still got a month and a half, a little over a month and a half to go by the time you hear this get your tickets. I'm telling you, we've got after-hour events. Some have already sold out. Some of them are close to being sold out. Um, We're, like I said, two-thirds of the way to sold out. So you don't want to miss this event. It's a blast. I'm sure we'll be recording some stuff. I know that we'll have a table for the podcast there at the event. Yep. Uh, We'll be recording some stuff again this year, uh, some interviews with some of the people, and it's going to be fun. So you'll get to hear some of it, but it's... Hearing about it on the podcast is not, definitely not the same as being there. So it's something that you don't want to miss if you're into this stuff. So um, just quickly, we had a few other events coming up. We added a tour, which um, I, I'm going to confess to you that we're recording this a little before it's going to happen. Uh, but on May 4th, we have a Ghost of the River Road tour. We rescheduled when We had some seats available for it. Um, an Evening with the Dead on May 24th. I think I forgot to mention that in our last episode. I think episode. you did, yeah. Um, that is a uh, an evening, a dinner, and a presentation on American funeral and death customs, uh, everything from you know burials and mourning traditions to post-mortem photographs, all that kind of stuff. Um, my friend April Slaughter and I did a book last year called Disconnected from Death, and it uh, kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with that book. On July 13th, um, Evening with the Black Dahlia, which is, uh, I I think that says it all in the title. Um, And then we have an Evening with the Axeman on August the 10th, which is um, kind of about you know, the an illustrated version of the podcast. Yeah, there you go. That's true, um, All in one evening with visuals. So, and we're gonna you know hit some people with axes to give you the idea of how you you know how it all worked. Right, and blood spatter, things like it's that. It's really so, a
1: whole. It's an inclusive experience. It is.
0: It is. We recommend raincoats. You yeah, know, that kind of thing. You know, so we'll have extras. Just kidding.
1: Just kidding. Yeah, we, so. can't, we can't. We can't joke that we're gonna murder people. <laughs> yeah, that's probably not a event. good idea. Yeah. So. Awesome. Well, are you ready to dive sure. in? Sure. Yeah, I'm ready. All right. So this is what I like
0: to call a. What what did I say before we started? I, I said a bridge episode or a uh, a reaction a reactionary yeah. episode. This is kind of a uh, you know what happened to give you an idea of of how it affected these people's lives. That's kind of what this episode was about. It's not. I know, and I you know I apologize. It's not a super long. It wasn't a super long episode, uh, but this was all stuff that is. Integral to the story, so it needed to be told.
1: Yeah, so absolutely. So in Villisca, uh we have what you called the summer of fear in southwestern yeah. Iowa, which, which yeah. I think sounds like a great concert right. that I would want <laughs> right. to go. It does, to. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. By and featuring one of the bands,
0: the Morbid Curious. Yes, yes.
1: and we're actually going to touch on that later. But I, I like it. I love it. So <laughs> that I used it again. Well, I, yeah. I mean, I love it. But yeah, yeah. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention that to you later. Um, so. Obviously, people are scared, you know, from the things that have happened. But it, it wasn't just that. There were there were it's really weird. Um, it was a weird we, summer. Yeah, weather and yeah, stuff. Yeah, so a there weird were summer. Damaging winds, violent electrical storms. At least half a dozen farm buildings near Villisca, including two houses, several barns, were destroyed by wind or burned after being hit by lightning. Struck
0: by lightning. You yeah. must have felt you were it, it, those targeted. people must
1: have felt like they were under attack. Right that summer. Right. Well, uh, they angered some god. They yeah, had to exactly. sacrifice someone. Exactly. I don't know. Because yeah. also farmers lost a bunch of their crops. Yeah. Um, and a new house built by john slack burned to the ground yeah so sorry john um that's unfortunate a few days after ida and lena's funeral sarah stillinger lost her unborn son yeah she had and, a miscarriage and before the year was over the family home was also destroyed by fire so yeah. bad luck you for have the stillingers to, too. you have to believe that you're being targeted yeah at no this kidding point. you feel like job at this point so yeah exactly so and i mean i'm sure i would i'm not a doctor i would attribute losing her unborn son, I would definitely attribute that to stress from oh, yeah, everything absolutely. that's happened. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's, that's terrible. So the, um, the people in, in Iowa, they were able to – I don't know if it's a police station or the government, how it works, but they offered a $500 reward. Well, the for governor. Invo- the the governor, governor put
0: up okay. a $500 reward, and people didn't think – I mean, while that was a lot of money in 1912 mm-hmm. – People were upset because they felt like it wasn't enough. But by law, that's all he
1: could do. Right. And so
0: I did. But they were at work on other things.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I did the math on that. And I'm not even making any jokes this time. It was about $13,000 today. But again, he was limited and that's all he could do for the reward. But there was stuff going on behind the scenes, basically bringing in special investigators to operate um, sort of in secrecy, letting people know who needed to know. Right. But other than that, they were just kind of hush about it. Uh, You mentioned it seemed like an inadequate reward for finding the killer of eight people. So the Velisca residents vowed to raise more money um, for a reward, and they did. The thousands of dollars were deposited in the first national bank in Velisca which was owned by Frank Jones. Right, which
0: is ironic considering that a lot of people were thinking that he had been the one who had something to do with the murder. Right. Were there a lot so, of banks, though? I mean, did they really no, have there options? No, were, there were a couple of – I mean, you've got to remember, this town was a, was a lot bigger than it is uh, now. Right. I mean, you, there were, you know, restaurants and stores and, you know, an opera house and, you know, all these – the banks and all this stuff. So there was a lot more going on there. So there were several banks in town. That just happened to be the most prominent bank. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he owned it. And which, like I said, uh, ironic because a lot of people were accusing him of a lot of things he didn't yeah. do, you know. Yep. But there's where the reward money was sitting, drawing interest.
1: Right. And then so some of the stuff behind the scenes that we mentioned earlier, the Burns Detective Agency is brought in. They bring in C.W. Toby is working as secret um, as locals complain about the state not doing enough. But he's working in secret. But he's also working at the same time as another uh, detective, uh, O'Leary, who was brought right. in by Hank Horton. Right. He would called him right away. He was working for the county. So okay. you had O'Leary
0: working for the county, and you had Toby working for the state. Both of them on the same case, but working independently. Right, and that's not even including all of the other detectives, because a lot of smaller. I mean, these were this was these were big agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pinkerton O'Leary worked for the Pinkertons. Yep, um, and Toby worked for of. the Burns. And but there were lots of little detective agencies that were sending guys kind of like on spec. Mm -hmm. They'd send them down there and if they solved it, then it would pay off for everybody. But on the other hand, if they didn't solve it, they were out their expenses and that's about it. But there were also a lot of people who were there, you know, Thinking that they were going to solve it, you know, armchair detectives yes. who decided to come down and view the crime scene Which themselves. seems like so much fun,
1: but I know, I know, well, I know it it's just, not it, good.
0: No, it just seems like, I mean, it seems like utter chaos, yes. but it's interesting. Yes. It is interesting because the fact that you could, it's just a different, it's a different time. Yeah. But that's an interesting thing that you just... You don't have to be licensed in any way. And anybody could carry a gun back then. Yeah. So you just show up somewhere and say you're a detective. Start asking questions. Yeah, and you start asking questions. And, you know, I guess a, probably a lot of these guys probably felt like, you know, hey, I, maybe I could solve this. And, you know, I'm I'm sure, I'm absolutely positive there are still lots of people out there today yes. who are the same and just, do the same and thing. And just get in the way. Right. And end up getting in the way. But this was a just, I mean, this whole thing was such a cluster anyway that, you know, they're they're hanging around Velisca looking for a killer who was long gone. Yeah, but they didn't know that. I right. Mean, you know, and that that becomes a big part of our story. The things that were going on behind the scenes in Vallisca are
1: as compelling as some of the murders that were happening. Mm-hmm. Really. I and, mean, yeah. And we'll get into some stuff. of that that some yeah. of that drama. Yeah. Um, but you you think at this time at least, uh, Toby and O'Leary didn't have any contact at, at this time. No,
0: there's no record that they had any contact, even though they were reporting back to the same people. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Toby was reporting to the governor and I'm not sure who O'Leary was reporting to, but all of them were dealing through the County Sheriff and Hank Horton. Right. So he knew them both. He was dealing with both of them, but, um, he wasn't taking Toby as seriously, mm-hmm. you know, um, I guess just because he'd come in undercover and was working for the state and Hank hadn't had any say in you know, his hiring or anything like yeah. that. So I don't think he took him as seriously as, as it turned out that they had a suspect in mind, which was ridiculous. Yes. But they had a suspect in mind. They didn't even tell him about.
1: Right. And so Toby, uh, Toby has to write basically daily like reports and mm-hmm. send them off and he's send them to three different people. So this is just me again, being ignorant of the time. Does that mean he has to type the same letter? No, three they times? had, there were,
0: there were, um, you used to be able to take like, um, sheets that you put in between pages and make copies oh, like a carbon copy like sort a, of yeah thing? like a carbon copy okay yeah it's it was the same thing and so he could file you know he could type up three reports by using just two sheets of carbon paper got it and a typewriter would you know those things had enough bang to them that yeah. it would go through
1: got it okay that, that makes sense yeah um and so we find out with this that Agencies and people—they're not sharing any information with each other, right. which causes a lot of problems. I mean, in the future—if if you think about nine eleven, Oklahoma City—oh no, it's, like it's it's a continuing problem. It's still a problem. A still a problem. Um, you know, I was when I was working
0: on the uh, the music book, and you know, I was writing about the Manson murders, mm-hmm. and you know, that that went on for months and months. But the detectives had didn't believe that the Tate murders were connected to the La Bianca murders. They they thought that was two completely different things, yeah. and that went on for months. Before they finally link the two of them Because everybody wants the credit and this case the reward. Yeah, I mean, you know, sure, that was 50 years ago now, this summer. But this was, you know, a little over 100 years ago and nothing had changed in that that 50 years. And it's still a problem today. Right. You know.
1: Yeah. And so we mentioned, you mentioned the suspect earlier. Um, There was a guy named Otto. He was spotted by Mark Kearns, who's a night watchman. This guy, when confronted, runs. And it's a big damn deal. Which is weird. Which, you know, I I guess here's what's weird. I think that uh,
0: Mike Kearns was was one of two night watchmen who worked for the city. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, he was really just... uh, like a step down from Hank
1: Horton, really. Do they have, have weapons? Can they arrest people? How does this work?
0: Yeah, they could. But I mean, there was usually nobody to arrest. Uh-huh. It was usually taking somebody drunk and putting them in the... But they could yeah, arrest they people. they could. Okay. But so on the night of the murders, he said that he saw someone he didn't recognize in the town square that night and didn't, didn't confront him. Well... Why would but you? But why would you? But in hindsight, yeah. they're looking back and they're saying, oh man, this guy really screwed up, right. you know, but you know, he didn't, he had no way of knowing that anything know there was bad a was going to yeah. happen. So now everybody, they don't recognize they're confronting, which considering how many people were coming to town. It's a lot of people. You know, plus, you know, they're on the railroad line. There's a station there. In those days, trains often stopped at every station and people would get off the train, they'd smoke, they'd, you know, whatever. Yeah. And then the train would take off again. And this guy had stepped off a train. Um, he was right at the station and Kearns confronted him, you know, like who? And this is this is in July. Yeah, this is almost a month after the murder. So we don't know why he ran off. I mean, maybe startled him, or maybe maybe he'd done something that did something else. Did did something else or whatever, but took off running, and it became a huge deal. And it was the whole thing was ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, to the point that they blew it up so much that he became a suspect in murders that had happened a month before. I just don't even understand what they were thinking. Yeah. I, I just – I could never put, wrap my head around this. But, you
1: know, and then – You're looking for answers, I guess. Yeah. I
0: mean, I, they, they were just getting more and more desperate as yeah. time went on. And so, you know, they're trying to track this guy down and they finally find him in Chicago where he lives. Yes. And uh, it turned out that he had been working in Missouri and was just passing through on his way to Chicago – um, and they found him – They, you know, this clever detection work that they yes. used to find that he checked his bags. I mean, yeah, because he was just passing through town. Well, anyway, um, when he found out that they were trying to find this guy, you know, Toby sent a letter to the governor and blew up his importance and he didn't even know that what was going on, which – thank, I mean – if it was me, I would have been glad I didn't know what was going on. Oh, with yeah, that kept, yeah. Keep
1: me in the dark. Um, but
0: watching. then he sends a letter to the governor and says, oh, yeah, we've arrested the suspect, you know, trying to get ahead of, you know, didn't want anybody to scoop him, so to speak. Yeah. It's like bad newspaper stories when people, when reporters jump the gun. It's the same kind of thing. Yeah. You know, he sends him a letter and says, oh, yeah, we've arrested this guy. And no, you didn't. You're right. And besides that, you might have picked him up. but. This guy to have anything to do with anything. Yep. Yeah, it was really bad.
1: Yeah, and it's it might be a controversial opinion, but I totally understand the instinct to run from the police, even <laughs> if you've done oh, nothing right. wrong. Right. It's, well, It's yeah. scary. It's intimidating. And, well, and how do you even know this guy was a cop? He's well, he's yeah. like not. A,
0: he's a glorified. Door wrapper. You're right. I right. mean, he's the a night watchman downtown. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't think he's wearing a uniform. I think mean, yeah. it's just. I mean, I never, I've never seen a picture of Hank Horton who was the constable. I've never seen a picture of him in a uniform. Right. It's always just him in
1: a in a suit. Right. You well, and it also and, sounds like they're just arresting people how well, randomly. Randomly. whimsically. You yeah. Know? So, were, well, like, you could back then. Yeah. So you don't want to get just, caught up you in know, that. Yeah. You could get away
0: with a lot of things. There were no Miranda warnings or I anything. Mean, you could just take people down and beat the crap out of him yeah. and, as an interrogation in those days. Right. You know?
1: And who knows? It might've happened to him before, you know, right. going who knows? Right. not getting right. the shit beat out of me right. again. Right. Uh, so finally we're getting to a part that I've really been wanting to talk about. In <laughs> July, Reverend Kelly's back in town and he's now referring to himself as a detective claiming yeah. that he had trained as a criminologist yeah. while living gonna in London. I'm going to guess he read a Sherlock Holmes story yes. somewhere. And that's it's not probably the, that's the same thing, right? Yeah.
0: He probably told uh, one of you know, one of the detectives that he lived at 221B Baker yes. Street in London and, you know, trained there with his friend, Dr. Watson. Or, I mean, this guy's a complete nutcase. Yes. I mean,
1: and the, the which detect- Toby. Well, the detectives yeah. there took very two different, very yeah. different routes. Yeah. Toby wanted nothing to do with it. Yeah. O'Leary, however, he cultivated the relationship and he's like, yeah, what do you got? Well,
0: it makes you wonder if maybe he thought, you know, he met this guy and it's like, this dude is so weird. And he was there on the night of, maybe if I glad, glad hand this guy for a while, maybe it'll turn out he, he did something. Yeah. You know, maybe he suspected him. I can't imagine he took him seriously. Guy worked for the Pinkertons. Right. I I can't imagine he took him seriously, you know, as a criminologist. Yeah. Because he's obviously crazy. And, but- I just don't I, I I don't know why he would Cultivate a relationship with him, unless he suspected him. Well, it kind of, or maybe thought he saw something.
1: It was gonna say it's know? foreshadowing for the yeah, future because he maybe is. knows. Hey, yeah. this guy's crazy, but he might, he might know something. that I can that I can work with. But we'll, yeah. we'll get to that um, in the future. So and we mentioned that this this summer of fear that the nighttime was still bad in Velisca because the initial terror. Had you know, passed, you
0: didn't mention about Reverend Kelly was the thing about. I, I thought for sure you'd What's comment that? about him at the hotel oh, doing a oh, reenactment okay. of the murders. Yeah no, I, I, yeah, no.
1: Well, we talked about it's it. That's like like my f-
0: favorite part. Yeah, yeah. Of Tell us about this whole story. This incident. Yeah, it's just, he, he would just, you know, we we talked about it before, and I, I was reading about it, but he, um you know, would talk about the murders to anybody and listen. And then the, the night they had to call Mike Kearns to come down to the hotel because he was in the lobby yeah. with a, you know, captive audience of people there reenacting the murders and was getting so worked up, they called the police. And I thought, this is why O'Leary... Must have cultivated a relationship yeah. with him because he just thinks this guy, this guy's got to be connected to this somehow. Right.
1: Well, I think it's right. also the flip side. It's probably why Toby was like, "I'm not touching that." Uh, yeah. Well. Yeah. Pole. Absolutely.
0: That, and I don't need to carry around a towel with me because every time he talks to me, he, spit he spits all over, all over me, yep. So
1: Yeah. I, I mean, we all, we all. I think we all know people like this. And oh like, yeah, sir. This Close is talkers. Is a, this and, is a McDonald's, please. Yeah. Can you can you just give me your yeah. order? Like, I don't need to know about yeah. your conspiracies here. Yeah. Um, so nighttime was still bad in Velisca, The initial tear had passed, but it was still common to find like two to three families just sleeping yeah. in one house because safety in numbers, people are right. terrified. Right. They get done with their chores at night and they'd say, all right, we're, we're going to go shack up and, you know, yeah. get together. So this town is still just devastated right. by, right. by this and, and living in fear. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the newspapers around this town or around this time. Cause they sound great. Well, um, well, the, the quotes that you put there, in this there were not a lot of libel laws back yeah. then
0: either. So And they were yeah.
1: it was brutal. You know, it's like it could yeah. be my family, it could be your family. Uh, yeah. Someone's yeah, yeah be that next. was a
0: yeah, that was a good one. Uh, that well that was the sheriff though. That was Sheriff Jackson was quoted in the newspaper with this, you know, these these fan, this whoever this is, he's he's looking for you. You know, and right. it's like
1: Dude, you're like the sheriff. Here. Yeah. Chill out. Come on, man. You know? Well, I just want to say I'm glad that we've gotten away from the fearmongering days <laughs> oh, of the press, right. you know, and, right. and they're not trying to scare us into anything and everything <laughs> anymore. Uh, okay. So there was another axe murder. Another axe murder occurred in Illinois in September, and even though it would turn out to have no connection to Velisca, it still shen- sent shockwaves through the investigation and yeah. it nearly ruined the relationship between Burns Detective Agency and the state of Iowa. Right. Right. Okay. so let's can we can we jump into Illinois now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to go to a town called Payson, Illinois. Where is it? It's just a little east
0: of Quincy. It's close. It's like 12 miles from Quincy. It's it is a tiny it's again. It's kind of like Villisca, much smaller now than it was Mm -hmm. in 1912. It's a much smaller town. There isn't a whole lot there, but this was a big deal when it happened. And, um, you know, the initial idea was here were people murdered in their beds, Mm -hmm. uh, except in this case, the house had been set on fire. So it was somewhat different, but it was still close enough, especially, you know, in the wake of the Colorado newspaper's you know, writing about, you know, the connections between mm-hmm. murders and that kind of thing. And so they're thinking it's got to be the same guy. Right. It's well, got to be the same it, guy. At
1: least they're finally putting pieces together, right, right. even right. if they're not exactly but this, correct. this
0: is kind of what killed it, though. Yeah. Um, and this is why it took so long for people to come back around to the idea that this was a serial killer, uh, because when this turned out to have nothing to do with Velisca or the other murders, they said, oh, well, you know, maybe there's no connection between any of them. Right. Then. And right. then back we go to, you know, right. this was we're this back was, to square one. Right. We're back to this must be somebody local in Villisca again. Right. And this is what did it. This is what put us back to that,
1: right. that so, spot. So it's Sunday, September 29th, 1912. Charles Fanschmidt – is that how you pronounce yeah. that? OK. Yeah. Wife Matilda and their 15-year-old daughter Blanche and then Emma Kim Pin, a teacher who was boarding with the family. Uh, their bodies are all discovered on Sunday after a fire had spread through the house and their phone lines had also been cut. It's three women who have been bludgeoned to death with an axe, and then Charles, his body had been dismembered with knives and a saw. So immediately, I'm like, "Well, this is this is different, right? You know, similar, but not." But they were grasping for anything. And and, you know, why wouldn't you? It
0: wasn't that far. I mean, it it is. It's some distance. It's several hundred miles, but it's not that far, right? You know, and who knows? Maybe
1: he's revising his techniques or something again, or his methods or something, or circumstances change and he had to do something. Uh, So both Toby and O'Leary are sent to investigate, and this is when the men clash. And it causes situations that that managed to help the serial killer like or I'm sorry, that managed to help this killer escape prosecution is what you what you said in your monologue. So uh, Ray is Ray Fanschmidt is the only surviving offspring and he is immediately arrested and then police find some bloody clothing. Oh, so how, where did they find? How and where did they find these clothes yeah, exactly? This,
0: the whole thing was, you know, the buggy. There were buggy tracks, but and they may be his. Right, and the clothes might be they his. They match the, well, the treads. There was a guy who lived near this tent that Ray was living in at the time. So he'd gone to work for a construction project for the railroad. And he was living in a tent and there was a guy who lived somewhere nearby and he had an outhouse on his property and was moving it as you often had to do because after a while, yeah. And so he was (laughs) moving it. And when he moved it, he found a bundle of clothing that somebody had tossed down the, which gross. Yeah, Um, But it found some clothing that looked like it had blood on it. You can't test How it. I mean, you, it yeah. could be anything. I yeah. mean, you know, it goes right back to that, you know, the chicken blood or, you know, you, you right. use you know, work pants and you chopped a head off a chicken. Nobody knows. And so they ask. they didn't ask him. They asked his fiance, do these look like Ray's clothes? I don't I guess they I might know. be. Yeah, and that was enough that and that. And he was a, you know, he was like a ne'er-do-well son yes. who bummed money and, you know, spent, you know, was his count was always overdrawn yep. and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, when his father and mother both died, you know, and with all of his sisters, his sister dead too, mm-hmm. I mean, he was going to inherit a lot of money. And so there you go. And mm-hmm. so that was enough. And they just immediately said, okay, that's it. You know, this is... It's got to be him. Well, right. O'Leary shows up and looks into this and went, yeah, this doesn't have anything to do with the list. Right. Um, but
1: Toby had a different yeah, point of view. Yeah, he did. Yeah. So he sees things a little differently um, and he ends up getting hired on as an expert witness to try to say it could have been this transient right. butcher. We don't right. know that it's this right. the same guy. And that causes a lot of problems. Um, So something that you mentioned that I I didn't know about and I thought was interesting. So it's common practice in multiple murder cases to charge the defendant with only one death. That way, if exonerated, they could try him again and get around double jeopardy. They still
0: do that some. Really? It used to be a lot more common. Mm -hmm. Um, It still happens today even. Um, You'll hear about a case of, you know, a whole group of people being murdered, but they'll only put you on trial for one of them. I didn't know Um, that. And then that way, you've got a backup. Yeah. And they used to do that a lot. Um, that's how so many of these trials just get done over and over and over again. And, and when you look back in history, um, but it's still a doable thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still a it's still a possibility. You, then you you've always got a backup.
1: Yeah, you know. Um, Which I don't so, know how I feel about that. Um, you know, I just because I mean the the way the justice system works is you're you're defending someone even if you think they're guilty. What you're trying to do is make the prosecution prove it. You know, and right, right. beyond a reasonable doubt sort of thing. And I don't know. I I don't want somebody to get off and, and you know for something that they did and have no chance to get any kind of retribution. But again, I don't want to lock up innocent people. Well, but it also seems chances. like that
0: it seems like you're not really that confident about your case. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean. If you're you're not that sure that you can get them on you know four murders. Yeah, instead you're trying them for just one of the murders. And that, but but it was a. Fairly common technique. Mm-hmm. I mean, it makes sense know? because of the yeah. way the
1: laws work, but yeah. I could see a judge definitely being like, yeah, you don't seem like you got this on lock right. exactly. Right. So I don't know. I'm yeah, I'm well, guessing things that's were different. I mean, look
0: what they arrested him on.
1: Right. I mean, well, no wonder it, this people was run like from the, the police then. Yeah,
0: this was like the, you know, the epitome of circumstantial evidence. I mean, this was just so weak. Yeah. You know, the whole case was really weak. And um, I mean, that's not to say he didn't do it. Yeah. I mean, for all we know, he did. I mean, somebody did. It wasn't our... Billy the Man, but I mean, somebody did it and it certainly could have been him, but you certainly couldn't prove it with the evidence that they had against yeah. him. You yeah,
1: know, as as it turned out. I would so. be I would be pissed too at the fiance. It's like, when you say you're going to marry me, you take on the responsibility <laughs> to cover No, nope, he was with me from 2 to 4 a.m. Yeah, right. He doesn't wear those thanks clothes. You kidding me? Yeah, yeah. He never wears blue. Yeah, thanks a lot. Something like that. So eventually he's tried, but he's exonerated on all these different well, murders. First he was, first they, right, they, they, found, they him. found him guilty
0: and that was purely on emotion so, there. And so when they know, go back, but, is it
1: an appeal then that they go back? Yeah, they to appealed do it again?
0: and and his attorney said, you know, this shouldn't have been tried in Quincy 12 mm-hmm. miles from where it happened yeah. because everybody had already been turned against him right so but then you know he
1: eventually was cleared of everything and
0: Disappeared. Collects his inheritance yeah, Pieces out off. Yeah
1: And you said The only connection Between these murders And Villisca Is that they were just Both never solved Never solved Yeah Yeah So Billy Billy Axeman Had now taken on A role of a Midwest boogeyman Lurking behind every murder Where an axe was used And even some Where an axe wasn't used Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, Council Bluffs Iowa In the summer of 1912 Families found murdered Early reports indicate Incorrectly that it's Billy But we know it's not Because of a suicide note wow. and Among other things Well among
0: other things But you know A murder happened. And it wasn't that far away, so they yes. just automatically assumed it must be connected. Right. So Same
1: a, same story all over again. Families killed, their, their throats are slit, and then they're killed, hit with a hammer. And then the man who did it, the father in, in this group, he slits his own throat yeah. to kill himself? Yeah. That is so weird to yeah, me. Yeah, actually, I've I've actually written about, and this is
0: all older stuff, usually. It's usually with straight razors, but I've re- written uh-huh. about quite a few people who've done your that. Your throat, not, not your wrists or something, way. huh? Yeah.
1: That just... I mean, it's all fucked up, but it seems really weird. And so this just makes me think, you see, kids, monsters are real. They just look like you and me. Yeah, Uh, It's just that taking yourself out that way. That's just I can't imagine. But anyway, so uh, they use an interesting tactic then to try and get the killer to come forward. And this makes a lot of sense for stuff you were telling me about in the first couple episodes. Um, They claim to have a photo of the killer and they say of of Involisca, And they said that the reason they had it is because... Lena had a picture of the person who killed her trapped on her retina, essentially like okay. the last thing you Believe see. Believe it or not, this was a common belief. Yeah. And then you um, mentioned that um, a few, but few years, years before
0: that people believed that that was a, you know, in the early days of forensics, I guess, um, you know, when fingerprints were thought to be a mythical kind of thing that surely that's not, surely everyone's fingerprints aren't different, that kind of thing. Right. And um they, There were a lot of people who honestly believed that a dying person, the last image they saw would be imprinted on the retina of their eye. Mm -hmm. And if you could remove that image somehow by taking a photograph of it, then you could find the face of the killer. I mean, this was actually a common thing. So crazy. And so somebody planted this story in the paper, even though no picture like that was taken. Um, but, but because people were familiar with it, it was, mm-hmm. they were hoping, I guess,
1: turn to scare in. the
0: killer into turning himself in. And so they printed it in the paper that it had happened and they were just waiting on the development of the photograph so right. that they could see who it was. And they, I think they wanted someone to panic oh, yeah. you know, or yeah. turn themselves in and, um, Obviously, that didn't happen. Yeah, and, and which I, it, I understand. It wasn't real. I understand but.
1: the tactic for sure. Um, it's interesting, and it's not
0: true. You can't actually do. It's that. It's interesting so. to me, yeah, the, yeah, because
1: as we all know, the visual information you see it is stored on the retina, <laughs> oh, right, and not somewhere. Right. But it kind of makes me wonder about in the future: uh, would you be able to? you know, light up the brain and grab some visual information of someone, you know, I don't know where sh- stuff's stored. I don't yeah. know how that works. Is there works. a movie like that? Or it's something? like a minority report. Oh stuff yeah, that's a different thing. Something like that. Uh, which yeah. is very, it's kind of different, but I, yeah. I wonder, you know, could you tap in and see what people have seen and I, how biased would it be? Uh, you know, I don't know. Um, it's very interesting. This was dumb, but I understand it um, yeah. for the time. But that's, but that's how desperate. People were yeah, getting. and I mean, I hey, mean, props you know, to them for getting yeah. creative with it and, and right, trying something right. out. I just
0: don't think they knew what else to do.
1: Yeah, so, so they're at a loss, and the killer he is on his way to Kansas. Well,
0: no, he well he was already gone. We're we're on our way to Kansas. We're on our way to because Kansas. because we're going to go back to the last murder that happened before Felisca.
1: Got it? Okay, So I can't keep these timelines straight. I know. Drawing. Well, it's because I keep I. Have alternate timelines running it's true. through the podcast. That's so. true. Okay, if you've ever seen the show Lost, we're doing like flash sideways, yeah, right. flash exactly. forwards, flashbacks. Exactly. It's now time for our Ghostwriter segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, email us at American Hauntings at gmail.com. So we received an email from a man named Mark. Voorhees, which I thought the last name was okay. interesting. And he said – he asked us if we've ever heard of black-eyed kids or black-eyed children. Have you ever heard of this? Yeah, I, I, I've
0: heard of it, um, and it seems like something that'd be right up your alley. Yes. Um,
1: so uh, I, I would give a little definition. You said so basically the black-eyed kids or children are a folk phenomenon of people having strange encounters with kids whose eyes are entirely black, who insist upon entering their vehicle or home, and who seem to ooze an overwhelming sense of fear and panic. These are just kids to me. Right. Children, not just like just general. normal, normal children. Um, uh, one of my my good buddies, uh, Jack, has t- sent me videos about this before, and he's like, "Hey, check this out. I know yeah. you hate kids. Look yeah. at this and these stories. It's basically, you know, people will see a kid on the side of the road, or a lot of times they'll come up to their house and knock on the door and be like, hey, we need to come in, use the phone,' and like something's just off about it. It's like the uh, it's like Resur- Resurrection Mary, but like evil, yeah. sort of and with children, you know. Um, yeah. But I mean. D- Have you written about this or talked about it at all? I um I mean I've heard of it. It's
0: it's it's I always just sort of put it in a category of, you know, shadow people and things like that. It's not anything that I've really ever encountered. You'll hear people talk about it sometimes, but I've never actually Spoken to anyone firsthand mm-hmm. who's ever encountered a uh, black-eyed children. Do you I think just, these
1: are? Is this an internet like Reddit phenomenon? Sort of. Thing, I don't or? think so. Is it just older because, than that? Yeah, it,
0: it gets older than that just because people have been talking about it for so long. I, I won't, I won't say it doesn't exist. I mean, I mean, it's you know, we're not. I don't think we're talking about the realm of Slender Man here, right? I mean, I think there's there's probably something to it. It's just not anything I've really had any kind of experience with, right? Or even you know secondhand experience yeah with. so no it's well not if you've had any about.
1: experience with black-eyed kids you not your buddies, uncle's you know <laughs> your, dog your cousin's yeah, stepbrother write in then. tell me about it um i i need more reasons to be terrified <laughs> Uh, moving on, the next email we got was from Leslie and she said, Hey, you know what? I think you should call your listeners the morbidly curious. Yeah. And I was like, you know, that's kind of like, I, I like it. It adds up. I think people who listen to this podcast probably are morbidly curious. Yeah, probably. It might really hinder Troy's plans for calling his band that. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> right. But I think that will, that will be okay. Uh, Last but not least, we have a couple new patrons that I wanted to give shout outs to. So thank you for supporting our show, Elizabeth, Teresa, Ken and Christopher. And if you would like to check out our Patreon and see what kind of different rewards and fun stuff we have and access to bonus episodes and T-shirts and things like that, you can do so at Patreon.com slash American Hauntings.
0: Okay, well, I think we'll wrap this up. And uh, with that note, I'd like to thank everybody, everybody again for listening and uh, for your emails and your comments and your reviews and that kind of thing. So please, you know, leave us a review on iTunes um, or wherever you listen to the show. And um, we'll, uh, who knows, we may read it on the air or we may just show it to each other and go, oh, well, great, cringeworthy, you know, whatever. Yeah. So anyway, th- thanks everybody for listening. And we will see you again next time.
1: This episode of the American Hauntings I podcast was, was written end. by Troy Taylor. It is produced and edited Can, painstakingly by me, be the Cody end. Beck. In each episode, we try to combine history, folklore, legend, imagination, and the truth to reveal more about America's most haunted places, strange tales, and unexplained events. Like this podcast, American Hauntings is a (laughs) by podcast. Check (laughs) out our new episodes on your morning commute every other Tuesday to hear our latest episode and take a brand new look at history and hauntings. You can learn more about our podcast and find new episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, CastBox, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast apps by searching for American Hauntings, or you can go to AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com. where we also have links to Troy's books, information about upcoming tours, events, and haunted happenings. Remember, if you love the show, American Hauntings is more than just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, ghost hunts, and the Haunted America Conference, all of which you can find at our website at AmericanHauntings.net. And if you're one of those people Read who wish we faster. had a new show every week... Good God, week, you talk about me reading too well, fast. Well, you can have that. You have the chance to support the podcast by checking well, out our Patreon page. At least you're putting That's some a emphasis in You it can too. get bonus episodes of the show, t-shirts, great stuff in the mail, and more. We're extremely excited about producing more shows with better equipment, and with your help, we can dedicate more time and resources to making that happen. Take a minute and check it out. We think you'll like what you find at patreon.com slash American Hauntings. You can also find your host on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you have comments, suggestions, reviews, or jokes, be sure to pass them along. Until next time, goodbye, so long, see you later. All right. Cool. I'm just going to leave it in with the mistakes. Oh, yeah, why not? It. yeah it's why not? Yeah, why not?